Well, again, I figure if he's up here, you know, because of the hurricane, I might as well have him earn his keep. So um, he's, uh, we're so thankful, though, that he and Natalie uh, decided to come up here out of harm's way. Uh, do pray for uh, Natalie's folks. Uh, they were receiving a lot of uh, heavy wind and rain, but they're okay. Uh, the last uh, I checked, uh, they're, they're doing good. And uh, so, so do pray for, I know many of others have mentioned they know people or uh, have relatives down there and appreciate Steve praying for all of them tonight. So I've asked Brad to come and uh, preach to us the word of God. So Brad, you come. Well, Father certainly knows how to embarrass his son, even when he's 27. So <laughs> that's okay. Uh, I'll forgive him later. Um, I hope you are doing well, and I hope you are uh, praying for the folks in Florida. It was, I had, I was, I've been telling people that going back and forth on whether to leave on, on Wednesday night, because by that time, no one, I mean, they still don't really know, but <laughs> they didn't really know what the track was going to do and where it was going to go and who was going to get hit and all that kind of stuff, and I didn't want to leave too early, but I didn't want to leave too late, but by God's grace, I think we left at the perfect time. We didn't run into any traffic or anything like that, and uh, thank the Lord for that. I know that um, also by the grace of God, where we are, or our particular home is, is not getting the catastrophic sort of conditions as it is on the west coast right now so just be praying for everyone there and of course all the people that were um, affected by Harvey too but um, just we covet your prayers and thank you for that tonight I want to uh, open your I want you to open your Bibles to first Chronicles chapter 17 first Chronicles 17 and um, tonight for you Type A'ers out there, I regret to inform you that I don't have an alliterated outline per se uh, that you can copy and remember and all that kind of stuff. But I will say that I hope to uh, share some words that are impactful. I know they've been impactful for me, and I hope they will be to you as well. But I was thinking about this. What is the most powerful word in our vocabulary? You know, there's a lot of words that sort of convey power. They convey strength. You know, maybe you're thinking of words like courage or bravery or fortitude or hero or heroism or a word like that. That conveys a lot of power. But they don't, those words don't necessarily contain power. When you utter them, they don't have a lot of force behind them necessarily. You know, maybe if you think of a powerful word, you often might think of the word love, right? That's a powerful word. There's a lot that goes into that word. There's a lot that's behind that word. But actually, I think one of the most powerful words in the English language is also one of the shortest, and that is the word no. <laughs> now, of course, if you're a parent, you're learning, especially me and Natalie right now, <laughs> we're learning how to use the word no and just the power that it holds. <laughs> and obviously, our little one is also learning the power that it holds, and she can say no, too. <laughs> um, but no is a powerful word. It is a small word, and it packs a lot of punch. There's a lot in that word, even though it's only two letters. <laughs> I think, though, the word no has two sort of meanings, two sort of ways you can use it. I think you can use the word no to both prevent, but also to protect. I think children, though, <laughs> children often only see the prevention side of that word. They only see no and that command as preventing them, as, as keeping them from something else. It's almost as if no is a barrier that's, that's keeping them from something fun, maybe, or, or it's keeping them from uh, something that they want to enjoy. It's a barrier. They see word as a sort of a gate. But I like to think of the word, and especially as 
being a new parent, <laughs> you're learning that the word no is more like a gateway. It's a gateway to better living. You know, and just silly illustrations. No, don't touch that hot stove. No, don't put your finger in the electrical outlet. No, don't play in the middle of the street. <laughs> That's not for your flourishing. <laughs> no is a protecting and a preventing word. And I have to say, though, I don't often see the prevention in it when God tells me no. What happens when God tells you no? What's your reaction? What's your first thought? What's your first instinct? Most of the time, I think that we, have, we only see that prevention side of it. He's preventing us from something else. He's denying something that's in my heart. What happens when God says no? I have to confess, often I act like a toddler throwing a tantrum. Why are you telling no to me, God, in this moment? Do you still see that protection, though, when he says no to you? Or do you see it as another instance of him keeping you from something that you think will bring you fullness of life? And tonight I think, um, I, or I, and I want to look at an intriguing instance of when God says no. And then, of course, you might know it. And in 1 Chronicles 17, actually, uh, we have David is nearing the end of his life. King David, the, the sort of preeminent king of Israel, is almost, he's at sort of the twilight of his life. And he, is, he expresses this desire to build a house for God. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. So he's, he's expressing this desire. He, he recognizes that he's in this palace, this, this enormous um, fortress, as you might say. And he sees, though, that the Ark of the Covenant is not in a place that's as arrayed as he is. And he expresses this desire that we need to build a place for the worship, for the honor, and for the glory of God, of Jehovah. Of the God that had sustained him, that had sustained Israel throughout all of their history. He desires a place for this very purpose. And it's a good desire. In fact, Nathan the prophet even confirms this aspiration of his. Look at verse 2. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. So now you would, you, we might think that God's will is clear. David wants to build a temple, so he's going to build a temple. He's gotten confirmation from the Lord's prophet. But look at what happens. Look at verse 3. And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my David, my servant, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in any house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. God said no. It's, it's strange, isn't it? David expresses the desire to honor the Lord, to worship God. We would naturally think that God would want to do that, right? That would be in God's interest that, that his people would worship him in a place that's meant for worship. God denied him. God said, no, the good intention of David's heart wasn't to be a reality. In fact, it wasn't in uh, David's life that he was going to be uh, building the temple. It was in his son's life. If you actually, you can turn over to 1 Chronicles 22. We see there that David, 
he wasn't uh, commissioned to construct the temple. He was only commissioned to sort of oversee sort of the preparation for it. Look at verse 2 of chapter 22 really quickly. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel and the, set the masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, and for the joinings, and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. What I think is interesting there, those verses, just as David is making, he's, he's, he's getting all these resources together, is what's the word that's repeated over and over again? <laughs> Abundance. He's collecting all of these materials, all these resources to build. And I think what we have to read into this text is build a house he would never get to see. He's collecting stuff for a temple he would never get to enjoy the glory of. And I often wonder, I often wonder how I would react in the same situation. <laughs> how would I react if I have this desire and God says no, but you, I want you to do all, most of the hard work anyways. <laughs> You're not going to see the amazingness, the awesomeness, the glory of this place, but you, you still have to do the work. <laughs> How would I react if I wasn't going to get the credit? <laughs> I wasn't going to see the, the amazing completed temple. I would only get to see sort of the, the skeleton of it, the blueprints even. <laughs> I don't think I would react like David. Preparing in abundance, being diligent about the work that he was given. But nevertheless, David then charges his son Solomon with the task of building the temple, and he was going to be the one that was going to see it in its full glory. Look at uh, verse 6 of 22, and it says, Then he, that is David, called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I'll give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee, and prosper thou, and build the house of the Lord thy God, as he hath said of thee. So we see here, the blueprints are all here. The plans are all made. The materials were all collected. But the building wouldn't be realized in David's own day. I, I, I like to think that the man, as we know, the man after God's own heart would never get to walk in God's house. I think that's kind of ironic in a way. But I also think it's interesting that David desired this good thing. He desired a good thing in constructing the Lord's temple. But, as is always the case, God had a better plan. I'm sure David didn't necessarily understand it at the time. But as is always the case, God's ways aren't our ways and his plans aren't our plans. 
And God promises to David that his offspring, Solomon, would be the one that would bring peace. Whereas David had a reign of wars and and fightings, uh, Solomon would have peace and prosperity in his rule. Look back at chapter 17, look at verse 10. It says, And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee, that the Lord will build thee in house, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me in house, and I will establish his throne forever. I love those verses. I love them because I think, uh, obviously, uh, certainly these words are directly pointing to Solomon. They're directly pointing to David's offspring, Solomon, who would see the glory of this temple fully constructed. But I also like to think that these words aren't only intended to foreshadow Solomon, but they're intended to foreshadow what God would do through his only begotten son. Because Solomon's reign didn't last forever, but Jesus' will. And Jesus comes through the line of David. See, God just wasn't just going to raise up Solomon to build this temple. He was going to bring forth a savior of the world. And through David, the one who would bring true peace, lasting peace, eternal peace, would come through David's line. 2 Samuel 7 is sort of a parallel of the same passage. And it says this, 2 Samuel seven twelve says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. That's talking about Jesus Christ. He was going to come through David, and he would establish God's kingdom. You see, whereas David might have wanted to build God a house, God's plan was better. He was going to build David a house. (laughs) He's going to build David a house. Look at verse 10 again. And since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee in house. God makes a covenant with David. Something far, far better than any sort of construction project that David could have pulled off. He promises to establish his throne forever. He gives him the commission to prepare the way for the temple, and then David passes away. Denied a good thing, but promised a better one, I think. God had closed a door on David, but he had promised him peace where he was. And isn't that just like our God? You know, we may not always understand what he's doing, but he's always working uh, to show himself great in faithfulness. And you know what? Even if it means bringing you to the end of your rope, he's going to show himself great in faithfulness. And I think I can remember feeling at my wit's end earlier this year. You know, 2017 has sort of been a whirlwind for us, me and Natalie, let alone this Hurricane Irma now. But back in January, of course, we welcomed little Lydia Ann into the world. And uh, by the way, young preacher guys, I'm just going to share this word of advice for you. Uh, Don't try and start a new church job while you're welcoming your daughter into the world in the same week. Don't try and do that. (laughs) I did that. (laughs) On February 6th, actually, I started working in a church up in Stewart, Florida, a little bit north of where we were. January 29th, of course, was Lydia's birth. So in the same span of, the, of a week, I was uh, having two very big life changes. 
And many of you might have noticed that I wasn't at that church very long. You know, ever since I graduated from college, I always thought, I always figured I was going to be in some sort of full-time ministry position. You know, full-time, as they say. And I figured that this position was going to be, I figured that this was it. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was preaching to youth. I was at this church that was well-established in the area. But very quickly, I realized that this wasn't where I was supposed to be. It was made very evident within about eight weeks that I wasn't in God's will. That as much as I was doing maybe God's will, I wasn't in God's will. As much as I had desired this good thing, and in fact, God said no to me. God said, no, this is not it yet. I ended up having to leave that church. And I have to tell you, if you've never sort of left a ministry position, I can't tell you the sort of identity crisis that has on you. And maybe that's a big sounding word, and it's not quite as dramatic as that. But I remember when I left, I did sort of have an identity crisis. If I'm not called to this place, God, where am I supposed to go? I've been waiting for years, as it seems like. I've been waiting for a long time. What, what are you doing? Why are you denying me this? I want to preach. I want to be in your will. I want to be used for your name, and yet you're denying me this good thing. I was confused. I had a lot of questions. <laughs> I was honestly depressed at first. Of course, I wasn't depressed when I got to see my little girl, but there was always this sort of rage inside me, this burning question that why is God pushing, putting this off? I've been really patient, God. <laughs> After graduating college, I've been really patient. <laughs> but I think it was then that God brought something to my mind that's sort of been this inescapable reality to me of late, this inescapable thought, and this, that is, I don't have to be anybody to be somebody for God. I don't have to have my name up in lights. I don't have to have my name known. I don't have to be noticed. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to have a title in order to do things for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that was me. I wanted that. I have to confess to you that I wanted to be a somebody. I wanted speaking gigs. I wanted to be invited to write at all the great blogs of Christendom. <laughs> I wanted to have uh, the applause of friends as they saw me doing things for God. I wanted those things. I wanted to sort of, you know, be with the someones of Christianity and feel like I belonged. I wanted the amens of quotable sermons and people would shake my hand and be, look, good job, Brad. I wanted those things. I wanted people to know my name. But you know, just like David, God's plans for my life were greater than my own plans. He doesn't need me to lead a movement. He doesn't need me to start a reformation. He doesn't need me to be the next gospel crusader for his name he doesn't need me going on all the speaking circuits to all the conferences. In fact, I would even say this, and I've even come to this reality, that he doesn't even need me to be a pastor in order to minister. I don't need any sort of thing like that. God just wants me to be faithful with where I am and with what I'm doing right now. And I'm still learning that. It's a lifelong lesson. 
And I still struggle with sort of being content in that little simple room of simple faith. Being content with just being a good dad, a good husband, and a faithful employee. Those are like the basic things, but I still struggle with those things. And I'm still learning to let the gospel overwhelm those parts of my life. You know, and now as I reflect back on that little season of my life early this year, I know that God shut the door on me. He closed the door. He said no because he still learned or he still knew that I needed some more years of meekness under my belt. (laughs) I think he knew that I wasn't operating uh, with, uh, with him at the center. I was operating with myself at the center. And I think God wanted me to learn a very important lesson. A lesson about the gospel of ordinary grace, as I like to say. He wanted me to learn firsthand that true ministry, true gospel living is most clearly seen in very small occurrences and not in thunderous sermons. And the most important things in ministry, and I would say in life, required you to do really small, very overlooked things over a very long period of time. Changing diapers, sweeping floors, Vacuuming carpet, mowing the lawn, even when you're allergic to grass. I found out this year that I'm allergic to grass. How weird is that? (laughs) But that's the tough part of the Christian faith. It's remaining faithful in these repetitive, in these unremarkable sort of things of life. Remaining faithful even in those little things. And because I think it's, it's, we have this sort of internal desire to be known. We don't, nothing upsets us more as human beings than not being noticed. I mean, I, I'm guilty of this for sure because I have all sorts of social media accounts. But that's what social media is. Look at what I'm doing. We want to be known. We want to be seen. We want people to make sure that they see us. We take extra care in ensuring that we are heard. And we're motivated by lofty aspirations and really big dreams. And the world will tell you to never stop until those dreams are realized. We're ambitious for ambition itself. And we're perpetually looking for the next big thing. But I think true meaning is only found in as we remain resolutely faithful in the mediocre, the mundane, and often monotonous events of life. That's where your meaning is found. And I think for that, you need something extraordinary. I think you need some really, really good news. <laughs> Unfortunately, you have it in your Bible in front of you. You see, the gospel of God coming down to us, coming for us, uh, radically inverts our notions of life and dreams. And it tells us to shake off our aspirations for ambition, our aspirations for whatever, and, and to find our greatest joys in the simplest of things. And I love Paul's uh, instruction to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 10 and 11, he says, But we beseech you, brethren... That ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The message of the gospel, you see, it calls us to uh, have ambition and to find our virtue, to find honor in a simple, as he says, quiet life. Paul's instruction there is literally study. It's it's aspire, uh, strive to be quiet, to be restful. 
And that is we ought to make it a point of honor to find joy in just simple, quiet faithfulness. And that will look different for each of us. You know, some he will bless with abundance of ministry success. And others he will test with hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. Some he will call to be businessmen. Others he will call to be plumbers or teachers or coaches or baristas or postmen or trashmen or whatever. But regardless of your calling, the message is the same. Live faithfully. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs and work really hard. That's what Paul is saying here. And this isn't, don't get me wrong, I want you to to feel like this is a message that's anti-ambition. Don't have dreams, don't have goals, don't set five-year plans, those are stupid. That's not what I'm saying. This isn't anti-ambition. We should have plans for the future. But the point is, the greater point is that our joy and our hope and our peace isn't in those plans, isn't in isn't shaken it isn't stirred up when those plans get unsettled i had to learn that the hard way i had all these plans and then god said nope i'm gonna change them god said no and how do you react when god says no you see what i had to learn you know there's a cliche saying and i think it's like when god closes a door there's he's gonna open a window But sometimes when God closes a door, he doesn't always open a window. Sometimes he just wants you to be content in the room that you're in. He wants you to be content right where you are. As a dad, as a single lady, as a son, as a daughter, as a grandparent. He wants you to be content right where you are. Where you are. And that's the truest gospel reality for us is being content with where we are, knowing that God has put us there. And He does all the changing, He does all the transforming, He does all the reforming. That's His job. That's His specialty. You don't have to, you know, as young preacher boys, we always think, I'm going to change the world with my preaching. You don't have to change the world, you don't have to make a name for yourself. You just have to lead your family and love your neighbors really well. And by the power of the gospel and the presence of the spirit, you are given the ability to do that. What's amazing is that our extraordinary God has seen fit to reveal in in his matchless grace, his life-transforming, life-saving grace in very, very ordinary ways. And I think as we recognize the beauty of our own insignificance, the glory of the God's gospel and the majesty of his kingdom takes center stage, not ourselves. Because, again, I'm going to repeat this just because it means so much to me. Because when God closes a door, he doesn't always open a window because he just wants you to be content in the room that you're in. And I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're in a season of God's no. Maybe you've just felt God's denial. Maybe you've just lost a job. Maybe it was that significant other you thought was the one and he broke it off with you. Maybe it was that the family that you wanted to start and it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe it was a business idea that you thought would make you successful and it has never caught on. Maybe even it was your 
pursuit of full-time Christian service, and God has said, no, not yet. You know, I, God has perhaps permitted this for the very purpose of teaching you about this ordinary gospel of his, of ordinary grace. And maybe he wants to remind you that he's already given you all the yeses you need. <laughs> Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul says this, For all the promises of God in him, that is Jesus Christ, are yea, that is yes, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. You see, you can live with God's no's, because for everything else, his yes is Jesus Christ. And he's given you his son. He's given you all the yeses you ever need, regardless of what season you're going through. Maybe he just wants to keep you in the room where you're in, to teach you about his ordinary grace. I know he's taught me that. He's taught me about being just a really good dad and a really good husband that loves his family and loves his neighbors really well. What is he teaching you? What is your reaction when God says no? Let's pray.